What should Iran's political system be dubbed? Is it a dictatorship, a theocracy, a democracy, or perhaps none of the above? There are good cases to be made for all these propositions, and I don't think there is one right answer. But I'm sure that many of you will say that calling Iran even a little bit democratic is outrageous. And I get it. Looking at how civilian politicians are being kept on a short leash lately, it's tempting to think that they were always going to get the short end of the stick. There's no denying that the system is skewed against the forces of democracy. But in hindsight, things always seem more inevitable than they truly are. To appreciate this, we should go back a few decades, to the 1990s. For this was a time when the supreme leader, the clerical establishment, and the representatives of the people faced off, and the outcome of this struggle was not at all clear at the time. Before we start discussing this contest, it's paramount that we pay some attention to the curiosities of Iran's political system. For not only was it the arena in which these forces clashed, it was also the thing they were fighting over. It was all about the question where power lies. But what is power in a political sense? Social scientists would say something like the ability to make people do what they would otherwise not. Since a human's muscle power is limited, persuasion is always going to be key. Some do this openly, trying to legitimize their authority, for instance claiming to speak for some higher power like the nation, the party, or indeed God. That can work, but only as long as people buy into it. If something happens that contradicts this, the spell is lifted. For instance, if protesters fill the streets, or if it seems that God has just punished you, therefore there are some who prefer to hide their power. This way they can also avoid the craps in a bucket dynamic. High trees tend to catch a lot of wind. But this sort of power still depends on persuasion, except that it is aimed at just a few other powerful people. These need to believe that it is in their interest to play along. To borrow yet another great quote from Game of Thrones, power lies where people think it lies. It's a trick, a shadow on the wall. This is true anywhere, but hardly any system resembles a shadow play like that of Iran. In the first part of this series, we briefly talked about the main institutions of Iran, and especially about their formal powers. But this can tell you only so much. We'll now go over them again, but in a slightly different manner. On the one hand, we'll focus on the hidden side of power. On the other, we'll also look at how these institutions legitimize their own existence. They do this by presenting themselves as a reflection of the nation, of God's will, or of other things. People need to feel that the system reflects who they are. In other words, we'll look at this system in terms of smoke and mirrors. Let's turn to the smoke first. The man who catches the spotlights most often is the president. The title of president in itself doesn't reveal much about his true power, not even about his formal responsibilities. There are many powerless presidents, in Italy or Germany for instance, like there are also symbolic kings. When compared to such figures, Iran's president is pretty powerful. He is the only head of government, ever since the office of prime minister has been abolished in the 1989. Alas, this government itself is uniquely restrained. For instance, it does not control the army, nor the security services, nor the powerful paramilitary forces. In other words, this government does not have a monopoly of violence. 
which is arguably the most basic feature of any modern state. It also does not control what Iran's armed forces do abroad, and that applies to both the regular and the irregular ones. The supreme leader is the one who declares war or peace, while the revolutionary guards are secretly involved in all sorts of foreign conflicts. The latter are a proper army, by the way, with their own air and naval forces. Despite its limited impact on foreign policy, however, the government is the one being held accountable for it by other countries. And by the home public, for example, when sanctions are the result. Some therefore see the president and his ministers as nothing but convenient scapegoats who face the unpopular consequences of policies over which they have little say. At first sight, the story of the nuclear deal seems a perfect illustration. We discussed that at length in the last episode. Now, even where the government does have formal responsibility, it is less independent than it might seem. There are, for instance, thousands of representatives, some would say spies, who act as the supreme leader's eyes and ears. These people even have the power to intervene in, um, in ministries in case things should go in an unwanted direction. So there are shadow armies and shadow administrations in Iran. And likewise, there are also parallel justice systems, like the revolutionary courts, who go over such things as uh, crimes against national security, and special clerical courts who investigate uh, the clergy. As a rule of thumb, the more shadowy these courts are, the more powerful. For instance, there is no appeal against the verdict of a revolutionary court. Some would say that their main concerns are in fact political, and hence that even naming them courts is something of a smokescreen. Another mysterious institution is the Expediency Council. It was set up to mediate between Parliament and the Guardian Council, but in reality it sides with the latter by default. And perhaps because of this loyalty, it has taken on other ta tasks that have little to do with its formal function, like counseling the supreme leader. Now, as past financial crises have shown, I think, problems tend to arise when the body who gives advice is also the one that's supposed to provide oversight. The prize for the most Orwellian institution, however, should go to the so-called assembly of experts. Sure sounds like something you would put on your LinkedIn profile, doesn't it? And on paper, it does have a crucial task, namely to control the supreme leader. The thing is, though, that it has never done so on any occasion in the past. Quite the opposite. True, it elects the supreme leader, but the last time it did so was three decades ago. So on the rare occasions that these experts meet, they do close to nothing of consequence. Now, does this mean that the Supreme Leader is totally unrestrained? Is he really a, the puppet master in this whole game? Well, at first sight, absolutely. If he uses all his prerogatives, he can obstruct any policy he dislikes, dismiss anyone who stands in his way, and take over any branch of government. But the Revolutionary Guards and the Boniats report to him alone. Isn't that a bit much to handle for any mortal? let alone for a very old man who is thought to have serious health issues. Is it realistic to assume that Kamenei can sift through all these reports that these thousands of informants would lay at his feet? It's the age-old problem of agency which exists everywhere, but the more centralized the hierarchy, the worse it tends to get. 
This has led many people to claim that people like Kamenei are themselves no more than puppets, and that in reality there is a murky oligarchy that's really pulling the strings. If so, then in Iran the usual suspects would be the leaders of the Boniats and the Revolutionary Guards. On paper, they are controlled by the supreme leader, while in reality they might control him. It would add just yet another layer to the puzzle, so why the hell not? Well, perhaps because of Occam's razor. By claiming that Kamenei is himself only a puppet, aren't we supposing some hidden plot of which there is next to no proof? Sure, the people just under him prosper, and they might withhold important information from him, but he might punish them if he find, found out, and if the other crabs in the bucket knew about it, they wouldn't hesitate to tell him, presumably. We might compare this to the situation in Russia. I can't imagine all those cynical oligarchs being so happy about what their boss is currently doing, but, but just watch the way they have to talk to him from tens of meters away. They look terrified, don't they? And rightly so. Good luck trying to control someone who can have you locked up in a heartbeat. I wouldn't be surprised if this were the case in Iran too, for this is also a system geared towards paranoia. But it's very hard to tell what's really going on behind the scenes, even in secret, in less secretive places. There's a whole group of people called Kremlinologists whose job it is to guess what is going on in Moscow's corridors of power. To my knowledge, there is no such catchy uh, term for uh, Tehran watchers, but their job must at least be as difficult. I think I may conclude that it's far from obvious where power truly lies in Iran. It is in a way designed to obfuscate the real locus of power. But such systems are never stable. Since power is in the appearance of power, a president who gives the impression of driving policy and who catches a lot of attention may truly come to be seen as the most influential person, and thereby become precisely that. Any president in recent history has tried this with mixed success. For his part, the supreme leader regularly has to assert his position. He must make it clear that he is, in fact, well, the supreme leader. On these occasions, the battle moves out of the shadows, and the mirrors become more important. So how does Iran want to see itself? Its official name may give you a clue, as an Islamic Republic. Up to a point, this name reflects, or aims to reflect, the country's self-image. Indeed, at the earliest beginning, it was extremely popular. The crowds that welcomed the founder at the airport was the largest public gathering in the country's history by far, and it was already more or less clear at the time that he wanted to represent both the people and Shia Islam. Most observers that I read feel that most Iranians still stand behind both messages that the name Islamic Republic sends, namely that public opinion matters, and so does the Quran. This need not be contradictory, since the large majority of Iranians consider themselves Muslim. That explains the reasoning behind the Council of Guardians, who must make sure that leaders have the right sort of character. It may be hard for the common man to tell who is in fact a heretic posing as a believer, or perhaps a foreign spy. Hence, there must be a rigorous vetting process, or so the thinking goes. Now, all this may seem rather cynical from a Western standpoint. Some of you may feel like, how can anyone buy into this? 
Well, to put things in perspective, we might compare this to countries that most of us would consider full-blooded democracies. Take my own country, Belgium. On paper, it's a parliamentary democracy. According to the constitution, the people choose their representatives who make the laws, and they control the government. As far as the constitution is concerned, political parties don't even exist. But in practice, it is they who determine who can run for office, with any chance of success at least. The campaign finance system greatly favors the parties in power, as does the electoral system. If you get a good spot on a party list, you can rest assured that you will end up in parliament. Once there, you have to do little more than push the button your party leader tells you to. You don't have much real control over the government either. Instead, your party will assign you another, more important task, albeit one that is not strictly speaking in your constitutional job description, to occupy as many seats in all sorts of councils as possible, so as to maximize your party's influence. That even includes the constitutional court, which judges whether laws can stand or not. So I suppose if you had to design a perfectly democratic system, you would come up with something different. But what? That of the United States, perhaps, the land of the free. Well, there, presidents have more power than party leaders, granted. And election campaigns are not paid for with public money. Instead, candidates must ask rich people or companies for funding. As Bob Dylan sang, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Usually, these generous sponsors hedge their bets and fund both big parties. Tough luck if the electorate favors a policy that goes against their interests. And that's not the only thing limiting voter choices. Independents have little chance to win any elections, so candidates still need party support. That means they are vetted by card carriers, who are on average much more militant than the general public. Furthermore, there are electoral districts, further limiting voters' options. These exist nearly everywhere, also in Belgium, sadly, but the first-past-the-post system maximizes the number of votes that go to waste. In certain regions, there is no meaningful opposition at all. The borders of districts are even regularly redrawn, so as to create even more safe seats. Nothing wrong with that, according to the Supreme Court, whose members are also instated based on their political preferences. And yet, they can strike down laws that are voted by the people's representatives. Why? Because they don't match the opinions of a few rich people for whom Indian raids were a bigger threat than traffic accidents. I could go on for hours like this, but you get the picture. I think it's safe to say that there is no such thing as a perfectly democratic system. The devil's advocate might say that, at least in Iran, the vetting process is not aimed at selecting candidates who can collect the most money or who look good on screen, but on the quality of the person's character. Parties are weak and short-lived, so they can't become self-serving bodies. Laws need not be in accordance to the opinions of long-dead slaveholders, but with the tenets of the Muslim faith, which the large majority of citizens adheres to anyway. Just like most Belgians and Americans will agree with the basic principles of their constitution. The litmus test for democracy comes when they no longer do. Then the question becomes whether the system will be flexible enough to allow for peaceful change. This is what was at stake in Iran in the 1990s. The Islamic Republic was formed almost single-handedly by Ruhollah Khomeini. He completely dominated the first decade of its existence. 
1989, however, he found his final resting place in his mausoleum. The Iranians have struggled with his legacy ever since. For something had to change. The next leader might inherit his title, his money, or his constitutional framework, but not his most important asset, his charisma. There was, however, someone who came close, the most high-ranking Grand Ayatollah in Iran, the most emulated object of emulation, if you will. The reason why this was so important has to do with the theory behind Iran's constitution, which came straight out of the founder's brain. It's known as belayat e which can be loosely translated as the guardianship of the justices. In a nutshell, Shiites believe that the Imam, as the Prophet's heir, has a unique understanding of the scriptures. Therefore, in principle, the Imam's insights have to form the basis of any law. But according to the Iranian type of Shiism, the last Imam went into hiding centuries ago, which means that there is no living Imam that believers can turn to for guidance. So what they, who can they turn to? There's been a lot of discussion about that, but according to Khomeini, in the absence of the Imam, the task of interpretation naturally falls to the leading religious scholars. They have to make sure that the laws of men are in, court, in accordance with the divine law of God. That's why a so-called guardian council was installed that oversees lawmaking and can disqualify people from running for office. In other words, the Guardian Council was like a constitutional court, with the Quran in the position of the eternal constitution. Khomeini also proposed that the high clergy must appoint one of their own as supreme leader to provide cohesion. That position naturally fell to him. As you can imagine, many mullahs welcomed this theory. For those with political ambitions, it presented a golden opportunity for example, it enabled them to administer justice again, as they once had. This privilege had been taken away from them by the regime of the Shah, which was supplanted by the Islamic Republic. The clerics' new powers went much further than ever before, though. They were in effect elevated above civilian politics. Not all Ayatollahs agreed with Khomeini, but few dared to speak out against him, fearful of the reaction of his supporters. I heard a diplomat on Middle East Focus the other day who said that some of the high clergy even tried to seek asylum in the United States. There were some who did raise his, their voice, however, including Grand Ayatollah Montazeri. And this mattered. The Grand Ayatollahs are at the very top of the Shiite clerical hierarchy. They are the ones that have shown the deepest understanding of the holy texts and are therefore considered objects of emulation. Khomeini received this title when he became the head of a popular movement, but Montazeri was held in even higher esteem. He agreed with Khomeini that the state ought to have Islamic foundations, but he was opposed to the authoritarian form of guardianship that the supreme leader had in mind. Of course this annoyed Khomeini, but he could not push the most venerable Shiite scholar aside just like that, not after elevating the jurist's status to such hates. Due to his credentials, Montazeri even remained his most likely successor until shortly before Khomeini's death. At that point, the latter felt completely secure in his position, because he had gotten rid of most credible opposition forces. Quite drastically, it needs to be said. Secret mass executions have taken place, no one knows how many, but human rights activists put their number in the thousands. 
The current president was fully involved in the affair, by the way. When Montazeri dared to criticize the act, he fell from grace. Kamenei would become supreme leader in his stead. So you see, a lot can turn on the decision of one man. Montazeri had been one of the last Ayatollahs to min maintain his independence. Their ranks were perched. Ironically, under the Shah, whom they had hated because of his secular policies, the clergy had been spared the arbitrary arrests that other opposition members were typically subjected to. In the Islamic Republic, however, there was a special tribunal set up for them, especially to deal with the clergy. As a consequence, conformity increasingly determined their position. That was kind of paradoxical, since the Ayatollahs were supposed to acquire their status precisely for demonstrating original insight. This shift presumably did not increase the commitment of common believers. So perhaps that explains somewhat why Iranians have become more secular than other Middle Easterners, while the devout often follow Iraqi objects of emulation, like Al-Sistani. From a relatively safe distance, he dares to advocate the division of mosque and state. So the clerical hierarchy changed, and the designation of Khamenei as Khomeini's successor was symptomatic of these changes. For he was not even an ayatollah, and thus basically ineligible for the job. The constitution had to be amended to cancel this requirement. Which makes one wonder if expertise in religious matters was not the primary requirement for the highest position, well, where does that leave the guardianship of justices? This may have occurred to Khamenei himself, for when the assembly of experts appointed him, he loudly lamented that he was not worthy, only to relent, very reluctantly, and to accept the heavy burden of supreme leadership. Poor man. But then again, the best leader is he who doesn't seek power, right? Be that as it may, his election was still considered an affront to the high clergy, but the occasional protest of someone like Montazeri was now futile. But Khamenei lacked the popular appeal of his predecessor, and he could not count on the same unconditional loyalty. There were others who tried to build their own power base, like Rafsanjani, the first speaker of parliament who had been close to the founder. As such, he prided himself on knowing what Khomeini would have to say about this, that or the other thing. In so doing, he tried to appropriate some of Khomeini's charisma for himself. This was not an unambiguous success, but he did manage to ensure that his ally Khamenei became supreme leader. He himself then became the head of government. But he would still live to regret his choice, for once in power, Khamenei was not about to let Rafsanjani boss him around and the two of them would fall out repeatedly in the coming years, which would lead to competition between their respective institutions. To win this fight, the supreme leader had to turn to the shadows. He needed to convince the revolution's mainstay that their interests were safe with him, as opposed to a guy like Montazeri, who had condemned their attacks on political opponents and advocated reform. They put their trust in Khamenei, and he did not let them down. The Revolutionary Guards in particular have been given a much greater role in the economy and politics since then. They had the perfect excuse. The land lay in ruins because of the long war against Iraq, and it was their task to rebuild it. But building roads or hospitals or uh, oil facilities, these activities can be pretty rewarding too. One might imagine that some other investors might have liked to bid on these contracts as well. 
There were other barons who could look forward to a few fat years, however, like Rafsanjani. He greatly profited from the liberalization of which he was a driving force himself, and this policy was against the wishes of his former protégé, Kamenei. This shows you that this president had a lot of policy-making power of himself. Or maybe it just means that economic reform was just badly needed. Although the regime did its utmost to keep Khomeini's memory alive, his majestic tomb attests to that, in reality it soon departed from his policies. At least in economic matters. Khomeini's ideology had been a blend of Islam and Marxism. He was always speaking in the name of the downtrodden, but his death roughly coincided with the imposition of the communist bloc. Thereby, the communist creed lost its appeal all over the world. Besides, the hardcore communists in Iran itself had already been dealt with at the end of the 80s, so there was no longer an immediate political menace from the left. So Iran did what many other former leftist countries did. It largely abandoned its semi-Marxist policies in the hope that this would create growth and tackle unemployment. Privatization was the order of the day, but as so often, this benefited insiders. While in the Soviet Union, apparatchiks had morphed into capitalist oligarchs, in Iran it was the revolutionary guards who acquired a major business empire, Khamenei's prime supporters. This guaranteed that they would remain the guardians of the revolution, as their name implies, their interests depended on the continuing existence of the regime. Well-connected clerics also prospered. Rafsanjani's family became one of the richest in the land, dominating the important pistachio business, among other things. In time, such cronyism would breed resentment among the masses, who did not prosper in the same way. It was hoped that cheap imports would raise the standard of living, but this was offset by unemployment and inflation not totally unlike in the former Soviet Union. Speaking of which, one of the reasons for liberalization in former communist countries was that this might clear the way for reconciliation with the capitalist West. So too in Iran. To achieve that, and also because they hated Saddam, the Iranians cooperated with the US in the Second Gulf War. But when subsequently a conference was organized to discuss the future of regional security in the Middle East. They were surprised to find that they were not invited. This would become a trend which explains to some degree why it continues to stoke trouble in the region. It is Iran's way of saying, ignore me at your peril. But at the time, the Iranians hadn't given up hope for conciliation yet. They reckoned that, to achieve that, they would need to move towards political liberalization. Large parts of the Iranian population yearned for glasnost anyway, as the subsequent election of President Khatami attests. His background is telling. Although he was a cleric and an insider, he had lived in Western Europe and taught courses on Western thought. It seems that he liked at least some of it, for he emphatically called for intercultural dialogue as a riposte to those, both in Iran and the West, who warned of an inevitable clash of civilizations. Katami's spectacular victory shows that the public agreed. He was elected by about 70% of the vote, and on top of that, the turnout was around 80%. Now, if you're wondering whether that is high or not, in the US, this has usually been around 50 or 60% in recent decades. 
And that's despite both parties urging their supporters to get out the vote. So it's not an exaggeration to say that Iranians value their democratic rights. Equally remarkable is the fact that the Guardian Council allowed Katami to run at all. Seems that they deemed it safe for a limited political liberalization, perhaps because those who had dared to oppose the Islamic Republic had long been dealt with anyway. The Guardian Council could have stopped him from running, but they reckoned that there were enough safety valves built into the system. What they probably did not foresee was that this would turn into a clash of institutions. But perhaps they should have. After all, Katami had declared that the essence of Iranian history was the struggle for democracy. That could only mean less power for the undemocratic institutions like the Guardian Council. Katami's speeches and his subsequent victory engendered high expectations among his supporters. They demanded not just democratization, but also freedom of speech, less restrictive social policies, and more equal opportunities for women. There are certain historical explanations for this. Iran had won admiration for its successful family planning initiatives, bringing population growth to a stop. But this had also had some unexpected consequences. Large families went out of fashion, which lessened the influence of family elders, who tend to be conservative. During the long war with Iraq, women had to take on traditional male duties, like they had in Europe during the World War. And like in the West, this made them more politically demanding. Finally, leftists in general had become more open to democratization as the leader of the undemocratic branch of the state, Khamenei, was more right-wing than his predecessor Khomeini. This provided a large reservoir of motivated voters for Khamenei, uh, for uh, Katami. In the beginning of his tenure, it looked like Katami might live up to the promises. The government ordered the relaxation of repressive measures. Women's rights and opportunities greatly improved. The West rewarded him, well, up to a point. For instance, the diplomatic relations with the UK were normalized, and in the UN, Iran was no longer lambasted for its human rights record. By the dozens, liberal newspapers sprung up that criticized the conservatives and demanded more reform to the dismay of the establishment. The clerical elite were already pushing back through the institutions that they controlled, like the courts. In a brazen move, Katami even went so far as to try to abolish the veto rights of the Guardian Council. That proposal, however, was stopped by the veto of the Guardian Council. But the last drop was when Katami announced that he wanted an inquiry into the deaths of political prisoners in the late 80s. Perhaps that was not so strange, since many of his followers had previously supported victims of those purges. The revelations of such an investigation would doubtlessly be very painful for hardliners, further strengthening the president's position relative to them. So the conservatives took this as a declaration of war. The design of the Iranian system betrayed the architect's own mistrust towards the popular will. Yet Khomeini had always enjoyed broad support among the common people. When he dismissed civilian politicians at will, few questioned his authority to do this. His successor, however, had to be more careful. If the guardians used their veto powers too eagerly, if they openly disregarded the will of the people's representatives, they would expose their lack of popular legitimacy for all to see. 
Supposedly, that's why they let Katami do his thing for a while. They hadn't anticipated, however, that their president would combat the system from within like he did. But they would not let him restrain their power, and they had the constitutional means to stop him. But that meant they were forced to formally block any law that did not like. They also turned on the screws in more underhanded ways. The press outlets that, they, that, that uh, opened up were closed down again. And activists and even ministers were openly attacked on the streets. So the system had shown itself inflexible. And what happens to things that don't bend? Well, they don't necessarily break. Not if the other side bends or breaks. Katami knew this too, and it seems he wasn't ready to become a martyr for the cause. Many of his supporters wanted to oppose the establishment, but instead he kept respecting the constitutional limits that were put on his power. In time, some would come to see this as betrayal. Indeed, a typical way in which regimes get rid of their former enemies is by absorbing them. And Katami remained a prominent figure after his spell as president. Now, I don't know the man personally, of course, but I still see him in a much more favorable light. If you look at the things he wrote and said, it should come as no surprise that he didn't have the stomach for a hard confrontation, which might have turned very bloody indeed. As soon as this became obvious, the hardliners felt emboldened to act more brutally. Since there was no forceful counter-reaction, they concluded it might as well carry on. Katami would share in the blame anyway. And so it turned out. So he lost without putting up a fight. Perhaps it simply had to be this way. For his was a message of peace and dialogue, not of confrontation. And that must count for something, I think, if only because it showed Iran's more friendly face to the world. The drapery fell over this age of relative freedom, when the screening of candidates for political office tightened again. The logical endpoint was the election of Katami's successor, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. This hardliner barely won 6% of the vote after the first round, but that was enough to make it to the second. For there was no really popular candidate allowed on the ballot. In previous elections, turnout had been impressive, but this time, many voters didn't bother showing up. That was clearly a sign of disappointment. In the second round, Ahmadinejad's only remaining opponent was even less appealing than he, former president Rafsanjani. Now, it's tempting to attribute Ahmadinejad's victory purely to right-wing manipulation. But there's more to it. There were things that people genuinely liked about this president and what he had to say. For one thing, he could pass for a non-establishment figure. He was the first non-cleric to become president. He made his name as a local politician. His work as major of Tehran won him international plaudits. He even gave a large part of his salary back to the city. He cherished an image of sobriety as a man of the people. His famous tagline was to put the oil money on people's dinner tables. There was a reason why that struck a chord. In Russia in the 90s, they used to say, all they told us about communism was a lie, but what they told us about capitalism, that turned out to be all true. This would be equally applicable in Iran in the same period, I think. And like in Russia under Putin, the disenchantment with liberalism and the anger towards the cronies who had profited cleared the way for a populist backlash. There was another, more sinister comparison with Putin. 
like him, Ahmadinejad also had a history in the deep state, and it showed. Like Putin surrounds himself with former KGB or FSB officers, under Ahmadinejad, many a minister came from the ranks of the Revolutionary Guards or the Basish. In the 90s, the Iranian regime had followed the vision of Deng Xiaoping, hoping that rising prosperity would soften societal tensions. However, unlike in China, growth remained below expectations due to bureaucracy, unfair competition and sanctions. All these things proved to be money-making opportunities for those who could circumvent the law. Well-connected businessmen could cut through all the red tape. Those who guarded the borders could make a fortune from smuggling. While common people were struggling, insiders became obscenely rich. The slogan debt to capitalism was regularly heard on the campaign trail, and Ahmadinejad was the man to exploit this mood. It so happened that his rival in the second round of the election, Rafsanjani, was regarded as the personification of cronyism. One of the few sectors that thrived was the pistachio business, which his family dominated. By that time, he had earned himself the unflattering nickname, the Shark. This may have been due to his lack of facial hair, but then they could have gone with a less unfriendly animal too. With such an adversary, Ahmadinejad could hardly lose. And with him in power, leftist populism came in vogue once again. It must be said that the conservatives' comeback was also invited by America. Katami asked for conciliation, but he was shot in the back. Despite the fact that the 9-11 attacks were denounced forcefully by Iran, President Bush still placed the country in his axis of evil. One can imagine the reaction of the general public. A fanatical anti-American like Ahmadinejad could use this to his advantage. As an accomplished provocateur, he defiantly associated the nuclear program with the nation's wounded national pride. Ahmadinejad pushed Iran down the dangerous path of confrontation. And as if to prepare the people for an upcoming war, he tried to summon the apocalyptic mood of the early days of the revolution. For instance, he constantly acted as if the return of the hidden imam was close at hand. In other words, the end of the world as we know it. He reportedly even kept the seat free for him in the cabinet, just in case. As you can imagine, such eccentricities made people doubt whether the president was still sane. The idea made many people nervous, especially as he blustered about destroying Israel, even went so far as to host a conference of Holocaust deniers. Was there a method to this madness? Well, the inevitable antagonism that this provoked diverted attention from the domestic economy, which was not going so well. Little had come of his promise to put the oil money on the dinner table. Instead, the percentage of poor people almost doubled on his watch. He took some typical populist measures that were seemingly aimed at helping them, like subsidizing fuel for instance, but some of these may actually have made things worse by fueling inflation and making a big hole in the treasury. He also scrapped a program to limit population growth. This had been praised as the most successful in its kind. By doing away with it, he may have opened the door to more poverty in the long run. Finally, in spite of his leftist image, he oversaw a huge sellout of government assets, but again, mostly to cronies. So it did little or nothing to improve inefficiency. 
under Ahmadinejad, the country became much poorer and much more unequal. That last thing was also true for women, by the way, who lost many of the rights they had gained under his predecessor. So after Katami, this was yet another grave disappointment for voters who craved emancipation. He had been unpopular to begin with, as shown by the slim margin with which he had won power. The fact that he was re-elected, despite his dismal record, was therefore unbelievable to almost anyone. In the eyes of many, it was now crystal clear that the system could not be changed from within, so some turned to direct action. Millions of angry people poured onto the streets, shouting, where is my vote? This became known as the Green Movement after the campaign color of the man who had lost the election to Ahmadinejad. The true symbol of the movement, however, became Grand Ayatollah Montazeri, the man who had been first in line to become supreme leader, but was shoved aside for criticizing repression. During the protests, he was kept under house arrest, but his views still found their way to the masses. Ironically, he did this by the same means as Khomeini had used to stay in touch during his exile, through distributed cassettes. When he passed away during the protests, he instantly became a martyr for a revolution that never was. The government's tactless response to his death undermined its religious credibility further still, for he was still a very venerated cleric. The Green Movement held on for almost two years, but then it petered out after paramilitary thugs had been unleashed on the crowds and its leaders were dragged off to prison. So were journalists who reported on the crackdown. Many dissidents fled abroad, which probably suited the regime just fine. It was clear that the dissatisfaction continued, however, as unrest returned ever so often. During the Arab Spring, for instance, which gave hope to the opposition and made the regime extra nervous, seems to have concluded that it needed to make some concessions to the popular will, or perhaps rather that it needed a powerless government that could be blamed for everyday policy failures. That might explain why the moderate Rouhani was allowed to run and become president. Now it needs to be said that some doubted whether he was really a moderate, or as moderate as he would let on anyway. Some observers looked at his insider background and reckoned that this was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Nevertheless, he too tried to build a power base of his own, as all his predecessors had. Rafsanjani had claimed to know what Khomeini would do, Katami talked about democracy and conciliation, Ahmadinejad acted as if he was on first-name terms with the hidden imam, and Rouhani for his part, he was more subtle. What he did, for instance, was he went to Iraq to meet al-Sistani, the most admired cleric of Shiism, who has spoken out for a separation of mosque and state. That was hardly an act of rebellion, but it didn't uh, go unnoticed. In The Economist, it was likened to a king visiting the Pope. This would not have been amusing to Ali Khamenei, who would rather sanction the president's rule himself. Rouhani's most important move, however, was to negotiate an agreement with the US. The high clergy criticized it, but they no doubt could have blocked it had they wanted to. They must have realized that it was necessary, since the alternative was a violent confrontation, which they might not survive. But as we saw in the previous episode, they had every opportunity to make sure that the results would not satisfy the expectations that Rouhani aroused. The hardliners could even profit from the relaxing of sanctions 
as it enriched the Revolutionary Guards and freed up funds for more aggression abroad. The GCPOA was nothing like the promising, promising reconciliation of the 1990s. This deal was struck with a knife to the throat, without any prospect of friendly relations in the future. As Obama said himself, you don't make this sort of deal with your friends. It might have turned out different had Rouhani and Obama come to power at the same time. But instead, the disputed re-election of Ahmadinejad precluded any progress. And by the time a deal was finally struck, Obama's presidency was already on its last legs. His replacement pulled the plug on the agreement just a few years later. And when that happened, the moderates in Iran must have felt just like when Bush had given his Axis of Evil speech. As sanctions returned with a vengeance, the economy imploded and the Rouhani government was left holding the bag. Since all the problems could now be blamed on the outside world once again, the regime decided it had no more need for a moderate face behind which to hide. How else to explain that the only somewhat moderate candidate who was allowed to run against the hardliner Raisi was the man most tainted by the mess, the former governor of the central bank who had presided over the crash of the real currency. So you can imagine he was not exactly popular. It was the same tactic as had been used during Ahmadinejad's first election. He'd had the comfort of running against the man known as the Shark. This time, however, even Ahmadinejad himself was not allowed to run anymore. Even insiders commented that the establishment was moving heaven and earth to make their guy president. Perhaps as a stepping stone for the supreme leadership, or perhaps just the opposite, to make sure that he doesn't get in the way of the other favorite for that position, Khamenei's own son. For as the economist rightly noted, Iranian presidents are rarely popular by the time they leave office. But then again, the regime doesn't seem to value popularity as much as it used to. Whether that is wise remains to be seen. For as President Kennedy warned, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. Power rests on persuasion. So when the smoke has cleared and the mirrors have been smashed, how will the regime keep convincing people to play along? The jury is still out, I guess. That's it for today. Next time, we'll talk about Ruhola Khomeini, the Gulf War, and the most infamous fatwa in history. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.